I'm gonna blow it, don't mess it up, I blew it, I gotta get right, repeat the cycle. And so there was a couple different things that were um, integrated in that, I shared those in the past weeks, and this particular one just got me. And it got me for about 10, 15 years or so, until just a few years ago. And the topic I'm sharing tonight is probably the scariest passage in all the Bible, and I think the scariest topic in all the Bible. It's the unforgivable sin. Feel good feeling message, right? (laughs) Sweet. But I'm going to share it to you because once we are able to shed light on some really tricky passages and understanding God, it is so amazing. And what is at stake as we tackle these lies is the goodness of God. It's is grace really good? Is God really a good God? That is what is up for battle here. And so is there an unforgivable sin? If so, what is it? Now, if you take that question to any commentary, you take it to Google, you'll find all sorts of ideas, all sorts of theologians chiming in. There's a lot of opinions on what the unforgivable sin is. The good news for all of you guys is that a lot of theologians are wrong sometimes. And so I believe that tonight is one of those times where this is going to be against probably the popular uh, convention that maybe some other speakers are, but I'm going to break it down for you. I normally don't give you so much scripture, but it's important because lies are pretty entrenched that sometimes we need to back it out. And if you disagree with me, there's no problem with that either. I am not offended. So here is the thing for me is that this thing unlocked for me, it released me from fear is the unforgivable sin, understanding it. And I must say also that uh, a, an author by the name of Paul Ellis, he's this amazing preacher on grace, amazing author, thinker on grace. And so um, a lot of the things you hear tonight are some of his dots that he's connected for me. You guys ready? So Jesus, we just ask uh, for just truth to reign here. Lord, we just ask that the scriptures would reveal themselves and would stand upon your truth, your scriptures. We don't want to hear from me. We want to hear from you. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So the unforgivable sin. Some theologians, some people think that the unforgivable sin is a bad attitude. This is nonsense. Jesus did not save us to enter us into a reverence contest. Though a bad attitude will damage your life, it may make your life really suck. It is not the unforgivable sin. It will not disqualify you from heaven any more than having a good attitude will get you into heaven. Some others say that that, uh, the unforgivable sin is not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. That was really bad news for me when I was about 13 years, 13 years old because I loved about everything more than I loved God. This basically means that if the Super Bowl Sunday falls at 9 a.m. on a Sunday, you have to choose, do I love God more or do I love football more? And I was torn because if I was really honest, at the age of 13, 14, 15, 19, 20-something, I wasn't sure if I really loved God more than everything. We'd sing songs like, you're all I want. I'm like, I just want a cup of coffee. I'm like, that's it. really when it comes down to it. I didn't, like, resonate with these things. So some people say, like, oh, to, to have the unforgivable sin is to not love Jesus all your soul, your heart, and your mind. I just never connected with that. It's like, oh, man. And so naturally, that, that fear of that belief that you have to love the Lord, you got with all your soul, heart, mind, body, car, school books, all that stuff, it naturally produces this never-ending scorekeeper of beliefs. That was a treadmill I was on. I was always on this treadmill, keeping score of my beliefs. And this is the system under the law that says that you, that you love God because you have to. You love God because otherwise you're going to hell. You love God otherwise because you're going to get punished. What if I went to my wife and says, you love me or I'm going to kill you? 
How genuine do you think the love is I'm going to receive from that? But grace says that because God loved us first, he initiated, he says, I love you. Do you love me? We get welcomed into a loving relationship that's on our terms with him. What about the willful sin? I've heard that the unforgivable sin is sin that you do intentionally. I don't know about you, but I want to do all the sins I committed. I wasn't like, darn it, I didn't want to do that. I actually like a lot of things. I actually meant to do it. Now, if Jesus is not in the business of forgiving intentional sins, we are all screwed. (laughs) Sin is sin. Call it what you want. Willful, unintentional, whatever you want. God forgave sins once and for all at one time. Some say the unforgivable sin is the sins you don't confess nor that you don't repent from. I spent my entire message last week talking about that topic. I was always afraid. Did I confess all of them? Oh, I didn't forget. Oh, no, I forgot one. I just lied about my confession. I'm really going to hell now. I had this crazy obsession of confessing sins, confessing sins, that I could go into this unforgiven state. And so some people think that the unconfessed sin or the unrepentant heart is, is unforgiveness. But 1 John 2.2 says that God paid for our sins, but not only our sins, but also the sins of the entire world. And the sins of the entire world, I'm sure there are a lot of unrepentant sins in there, a lot of sins that were unconfessed in there. Jesus' blood paid for it all. What about unforgiveness? I've heard that harboring unforgiveness in your heart is the unforgivable sin. That if you don't forgive them, God won't forget you. Well, that sounds like Jesus said it. Actually, Jesus did say that. It's important to know that oftentimes who Jesus is talking to, you just can't pick up the scriptures and just cherry pick a single line and say, I'm going to prove this point here. Yes, Jesus says, if you do not forgive them, my father will not forgive you. He was speaking to Pharisees. Why was he speaking to Pharisees? He was trying to make a point. The Pharisees wanted to prove their justification through all the law. They were the nitpickers. They tied on mint and cumin. They, they tied on like nose hairs, right? They were all about it. And so Jesus says, you want to play that way? Let me show you. You don't forgive them, my father won't forgive you. He's making a point to the Pharisees. Think about it too. If unforgiveness of sin, uh, an unrepentant or unforgiveness of sin towards someone else, if that is a sin that God does not forgive us for, isn't God himself sinning by not forgiving us for not forgiving others? Right? I mean, and if God's sinning, we're all, again, we're screwed again. I mean, that is not what we want to have. A, A God that sins is not a good God, but God is a good God. And so we can take heart in that God forgives all our sins. That is good news. What if I take the Lord's name in vain? I think at the age of four, I was told, you say, gosh, gosh, darn it, darn it. You say all these words to keep you from saying the Lord's name in vain. Until I was in sixth grade at the YMCA basketball. And I meant to say, oh, gosh. And I said, oh, God. And I was like, and lightning bolts just fell from the sky. No, no, I actually was fine. I still am fine. But you know what? Lightning bolts hit my heart. I'm like, I use the Lord's name in vain. It's an unforgivable sin. I'm over I was like convinced. It's like, oh man, what am I going to do? Now, if this was a few thousand years ago, the old covenant, I would have been drugged outside the gymnasium and stoned. But fortunately, amen, we are not in that time period, right? So I was not stoned, I was not struck by lightning. What about the unforgivable sin is that thinking bad thoughts about God or saying bad thoughts about God? 
I don't know about you, but I had a lot of doubt in my journey in faith. I had a lot of doubt. I think it's okay to say, like, huh, that's pretty doubtful. But when we express and we admit that we have doubt, we all sudden, oh, am I really saved? Uh-oh. I actually, I tell you the truth, a month ago, I had one of those moments where I doubted God's goodness. I was watching something on TV, and it showed this horrific, I could not believe, I'm like, what am I watching? How is this allowed to be on TV? The killing and suffering of children, this, this crazy accident, and it, it walks up on children in the, in the process of dying. And I, at that moment, like, there's no way a good God would allow that to happen. You know what I did? Is I didn't take ownership of that thought. It's one thing for a thought to enter your mind. It's another to take ownership of that thought. Now, I took authority and control over that thought, but I didn't take ownership of that thought. It's a big difference. Just because a thought enters your mind doesn't mean it belongs to you. doesn't mean you own it. You have the power and authority to take control over it. Why would God give you the power and authority to take over something that already was you? So I give you power to take every thought captive. Why would you need to take your own thoughts captive? Because maybe they're not your own thoughts. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the original sin? Go back all the way to the Garden of Eden. The precursor to the fall was a thought. It wasn't a bite of an apple. It was a thought. Did God really say that? Said the devil. See, we've forgotten that Satan's very first scheme in inspiring sin was to plant a thought. Did God really say that? Doubting and skepticism is inspired from the devil, not Adam. That's why God in his infinite wisdom gave us the crazy passage, 1 Corinthians 2.16, that you have the mind of Christ. For that very reason that we would say, I have the mind of Christ, and the mind of Christ does not think and question for a moment that God is not good. And so I let that thought exit my mind. I'm not going to own that. That's not me. Why would I take responsibility from that? That wasn't something I wanted to think. But it was there. There's a saying that says, you can't stop birds from flying over your head. Do you guys know how this goes? But you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. You can't stop birds from flying overhead, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. That's the same thing with the thoughts of your mind. If you're like me, you've had sudden thoughts, bad thoughts. I've had bad thoughts. I'm not afraid to admit it. I've had bad thoughts, but then I recognize maybe those thoughts weren't inspired by me. Maybe it didn't belong to me. I have the mind of Christ. I don't think the mind of Christ is defective. Maybe I don't belong to think about those are my thoughts. And it liberated me. It's a powerful notion. So don't take ownership of bad thoughts because they probably weren't inspired from you. But all these things, this created this religious OCD where I'm just like obsessive, compulsive, asking for forgiveness. I'm rededicating my life over and over and over again. I'm sure there's some scoreboard somewhere in heaven where like I have like the most salvations. I'm sure of it. So where does this notion of the unforgivable sin come from? It comes from Matthew chapter 12, verse 32. It says, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Jesus identifies one thing that cannot be forgiven, speaking or blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Now, verses like this are really scary if that's the only passage you happen to flip through. Every, like, open the Bible and you open up a passage like, oh, I'm just going to pass on that one. <laughs> for a long time. This is one of those for me. 
It's like, I'm just going to pretend that that passage does not even exist. It just helps my mind exist a little bit better. So let's pick this apart. You guys ready? First, we have to ask, what does blasphemy mean? Blasphemy, there it is, means to behave slanderously against someone. To behave slanderously against someone. Now, Paul preached grace. He preached that we have forgiveness of sins without having to be right. It's a free gift. And people said, okay, yeah, there is forgiveness of sins and good comes from sinning. And so the minds, they said, hey, we want more good to take place. Why don't we have more sin? Because then more sin produces more good and more good's right. Good, yeah, yeah. He's like, no, that's a terrible idea. Don't sin more so that more grace can be overflowed. It says that is a slanderous blasphemo, the Greek word, blasphemy, slanderous thoughts, meaning it is against the character of God. It is creating God to be a liar. It injures the character of God. It makes God out to be untruthful. In the simplest terms, blasphemy is to make God a liar. Not only is it slanderous, not only is it to come against, but at the root, the simplest way we can understand is that it makes God a liar. Remember that part because we're going to come back to it. Now, regularly, I hear Christians debate about Christianity. It's one of my favorite pastimes. How common is it for us to find someone, pick out your favorite preacher, whoever it is. That person's a blasphemer. They're the anti-Christ. I mean, if you're Joel Osteen, you have heard it a ton. You know, you have, you've gotten a, a good shakedown of blasphemy accusations. We, we blasphemy about all sorts of things about, you know, the flavors of Christianity we don't like. It's, it's common to see people who say that um, praying in tongues is demon-possessed. It's regular here that, that any prophecy in this day and age is the work of the spirit of the Antichrist. It is popular to say that healings and miracles are the works of the devil. I don't know how that works. I even saw a, a post this past week, and it's a southern church, congregations filled, and they had some like good, I've never heard the worship song before. It wasn't a Chris Tomlin song, that's for darn sure. But people were just like, they were so joyful, dancing around, just worshiping Jesus, hands up. And the comment was like, what kind of carnal satisfaction of the devil worship is this? I'm like, that's pretty intense, don't you think? A little heavy-handed. All the time, God's going to send an earthquake to San Francisco. I swear, if I hear that one more time, I'm going to lose my chickens. It happens all the time. God sent the hurricane to Louisiana, right? I mean, God sent this disaster over here. God is, I mean, we hear these things all the time, impugning the character of God. The things that we say what God does and doesn't do is crazy. Now, not everyone can be right on all these topics, right? So someone is wrong. Someone is injuring God's character. No matter which side you're on that, somebody's wrong. One of us is blaspheming. One of us is going to hell if we don't understand the scriptures right. So then it asks, okay, so that's blasphemy, making God to be a liar, injuring God's character. So the question is, are blasphemers going to hell? Do they lose their salvation? Well, if blasphemers are going to hell, then Apostle Paul has a very, very, very big problem. 1 Timothy 1 uh, verse 13 and 15. Look at this. It says, I was formerly a 
blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Basically mean, he says, I'm the chief sinner. He's like, you think you can sin? I got you beat. He says, not only was I a blasphemer, I was the chief sinner. If you know the Apostle Paul, he is the most instrumental person in writing 80% of the New Testament. Do you know what he did before he took up his career in Bible writing? He put Christians to death. He had the mission to exterminate Christianity. He presided over the imprisonment, the death, and the destruction of the early church. He stood by watching, directing, enforcing it. Now, if that doesn't come against the character of God, I don't know what else does. I don't know if you can get much worse than that. And here I'm thinking, oh, I said, you know, the word God at a sixth grade basketball game, and I'm thinking I lost my salvation. Here we have Paul. He's like, I am the biggest blasphemer you've ever seen. I killed Christians. I imprisoned them. I did everything in my power to stop the gospel from ever existing, and by the grace of God, I'm redeemed. That is great news for us. Jesus routinely encountered blasphemers. In Matthew 12, Jesus comes and he heals a demon-possessed man who also is blind, and Jesus heals him. Whammo! Healed. The Pharisees say, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. That sounds like blasphemy to you. To me. Does it to you? So right there, Jesus has an encounter with the Pharisees who blaspheme, and he says, Oh, some clouds are coming for you. The ground is going to open up and swallow you whole. You blasphemer? He says, no. Look what he says. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now pay attention to that last part. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now, what's interesting about this is this is the preceding verse to our really thorny, very tricky passage where Jesus says, you shall not be forgiven if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So the, the, I'm going to come back to that, but the Pharisees routinely declare what Jesus was doing a work of the devil. Are you guys still with me? But here, look what Luke says about the Pharisees. He says, but the Pharisees and the experts in religious law rejected God's plan for them, for they had refused John's baptism. It didn't say, for the Pharisees, the laws, and the teachers, they were blasphemers, and so therefore they are gone. He says, no, the problem with the Pharisees is they rejected God's plan for them. If you ever need a passage of like, I can't do anything against God's plan, here you go. Right there. God had desires, plans, expectations for the Pharisees, and they're like, nope, not going to do it. So the sin of the Pharisees was not necessarily they blasphemed, because I'm sure they did. They rejected God's plan for them. So from Paul to probably every single Christian on earth, it's probably safe to say at one point or another, you and I have probably blasphemed at some point. I know for me, when I look through all the different things and, and the things before I was saved, I'm sure that I had. So does that mean that I'm eternally condemned? Let's dig a little deeper. To understand what this means, we need to know exactly what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Notice that Jesus says the Holy Spirit, he made specific mention of speaking against and blaspheming the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus made that distinction very, very clear. It's interesting, isn't it? So remember, blasphemy is to make God a liar, right? That's the root of it in the simplest terms. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to make the Holy Spirit a liar. And to understand what that means, we must discover what is true about the Holy Spirit and its ministry. So Jesus says, you can blaspheme the, the Son of Man himself. So no problem there. But you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Ooh, that's unforgivable. That's kind of weird. I thought you guys were one. That's our first clue that something's up with this passage. You guys tracking? So we have to ask ourselves, what is the express ministry and mission of the Holy Spirit where Jesus is going to make a distinction that is different than him? It's very weird. So what is the express ministry of the Holy Spirit? Well, there are three things mentioned in John 16. Let me read it all together. I'm going to break it out into each one. John 16, verse 8 through 11, it says, When he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. That means a whole lot of nothing to all of us, right? Do you ever read like passages and like, I know those were words, I had no idea what they meant. It's like, yeah, 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 whatever. We move on. In here, in this passage, is the answer to what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Let me break it down for you. There are three things mentioned here. So we ask ourselves, what is the first thing mentioned about the ministry of the Holy Spirit? The first thing is this. When he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me. The very first thing the Holy Spirit does is to convince you that there is sin in the world. This is very, very important. The very first thing the Holy Spirit does is convince you that there is sin in the world. And not only that, but you need to be fully convinced that sin is real. And not only that, that you need to be fully convinced that you cannot save yourself from sin. That's what that means. Now, why do you need to be fully convinced that there is sin and that sin is real? Before you can believe in a Savior... You need to be convinced that you need a Savior. What good is there for a Savior if you don't believe there's sin in the world? What good is there for a Savior if you don't believe that sin is really real? What point is there in having a Savior? You don't believe you even need to be saved. So the very first thing the Holy Spirit does is I come to convict and convince the world of sin because they do not believe in me. We are fallen. We are without a shepherd before we know Jesus. He says, I come to convince you that you need a Savior. The second aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convince the world of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Second thing, I convict the world of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. That's kind of weird. Jesus is talking here, right? Like, I still see you. That makes no sense. What happened when Jesus went to the Father? The cross, right? You see me no more. He will come and convict the world of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. The second the Holy Spirit does is to convince you that there was a cross. The second thing the Holy Spirit does is convince you there's a cross. Why? Because at the cross, something amazing happened. Righteousness came. At the cross, righteousness came. I come to convict the world of righteousness. You need to be convinced of righteousness. Why? It's because Jesus said this about entering the heavens. He says, Matthew 5, 20, says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses 
that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You catching this? Jesus is saying, you can't get into heaven unless your righteousness surpasses all the righteous people you know. Which at that time was just an unfathomable thing. People like tore their robes and tunics. Who can be saved? You know? But they didn't know that in here that at the cross, their righteousness would come. That at the cross, something crazy would happen. Their righteousness would become ours. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You get to take heart and hope into that you are the very righteousness of God. Hello? Yeah? You are the righteousness of God. This is the most mind-blowing, I know I say that word a lot, it's the most mind-blowing thing ever. That you are the righteousness of God. Here's what I say. The Holy Spirit comes and convinces you of your salvation by becoming the righteousness of God. The Holy Spirit's second mission is to say it means that you have to be righteous to enter the kingdom of God and you are righteous. Are you with me? What's the third part? When he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. When he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Because there was a cross, there was a victory. Someone was victorious and someone was defeated. Someone is condemned, someone is not condemned. Are you catching this? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It allows you to declare, there is no condemnation for me. God has set me free. It allows you to scream that God is for me. Who can be against me? Not only are you saved, but you are victorious. The third thing the Holy Spirit does is says that there was a battle. It was won, and you're free. Someone was defeated. Someone won. Let me simplify it, break it down. The three things the Holy Spirit does. Convince you that there is sin in the world, and you need a Savior. Two, convince you there was a cross and a pathway for righteousness to enter heaven. Three, convince you death and sin has been defeated and you're no longer condemned. What does that sound like to anybody? The gospel. Are you catching this? The ministry of the Holy Spirit, the mission, the aim, the focus is the gospel. When Jesus says, you can speak against me, but there's the truth that's coming. The gospel. There's sin in the world. You have to believe it in order to have a savior. There's a cross that's going to make you righteousness. And the only way you're going to enter heaven is if you're righteous. It's free for you. And sin and, sin and death has been defeated and it's free gift for you that you can take right now. That's the mission of the Holy Spirit. That's what the ministry of the Holy Spirit does. And so to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to blaspheme the gospel. Are you following me? Remember what blasphemy is? It's to make God a liar, to make the Holy Spirit a liar, to make the gospel a liar. Are you tracking? What's the single way that the scriptures say that you can make God a liar? Do you know there's a passage? The single way that you can make God a liar. 1 John 5.10 the one, watch this, who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. 
Are you seeing this? How do you make God a liar? It's unbelief. It's making the gospel lie but not believing in it. Remember, the story of God is that God so loved the world. God saved the world. That's the story, right? John 3, 16. God so loved the world, he gave his son. God paid for the sins of the world, right? Are all people saved? No. The way that we make the gospel a lie is those who refuse to participate in the eternal promise that God saves and redeems all. It's right there that those who do not believe God has made God a liar. Now that's why if you believed in Jesus, if you've accepted his ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is the gospel, you are safe from the unforgivable sin. And the pure fact that you'd even worry about the unforgivable sin is proof positive that you have not committed the unforgivable sin. You wouldn't even be concerned. The fact that you'd be aware about it is proof in itself. How you guys doing? Doing a little extra credit? Is that making sense? When I got, grabbed a hold of this, it just like unleashed me. It's like, yeah, <laughs> I have been saved all those years. That's awesome, you know? But it also unlocks the scriptures and it gives me details into what Jesus, he's really good all the time. But it's also important to examine Whenever Jesus speaks, who he's speaking with. Jesus was speaking to Pharisees in this moment. Remember he says that those who do not gather with me scatter. Before that verse, he distinguished either you're for me or against me. And then you have the passage about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You're either for me or against me. You're either saved or not saved. And Jesus was ultimately speaking to the either, either or nature of salvation. When he said these words, the Holy Spirit had not come yet and the gospel was not complete. This is all gibberish to people like, you're still standing in front of me. I don't get this. And you're talking about all these things. I, who's the Holy Spirit at this time? They're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. So we have to understand that in context. When we find difficult passages, we have to read it in context and understand what is going on here. We, we did a whole series on women in ministry, which is fascinating. And the same notions happen in there. And we find liberation in these scriptures. But that Jesus in this time, in referencing blasphemy, was, was referencing that after his death, the salvation of all would be available, the gospel would be complete, and the Spirit's mission would be unfolded to bring salvation to all. At the simplest terms we can understand, that's what Jesus is saying by this. Now why did Jesus reference, you might be asking, I was, why was Jesus referencing speaking in words, using words, speak against the Holy Spirit regarding the unforgivable sin? You know the answer? I have no idea. No idea. I also have no idea why John or why Romans 10:9 says, if you confess with your mouth, God created the heavens and the earth with words. Words create worlds. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus raised from the dead, you'll be saved. Apparently, our words are really important. I have no other explanation besides the fact that Jesus says that your words will be justified and by your words will be condemned. I think he's saying that you come into salvation with the words of saying, yes, Jesus. And the absence of a yes, Jesus is a no, Jesus. And you know that not saying something is saying something. 
Just because he's like, I still haven't decided on Jesus. It's like, you're either for me or against me. It's one of the two. That's my best guess. But let's put one final nail in the coffin, and I close with this. One final nail in the coffin of the unforgivable sin. Remember that the Holy Spirit is to convince you that the enemy has been defeated and that you are victorious. You are victorious. If you're in Christ, you are crazy victorious. I'm king of the world, all that good stuff. Revelation 3.5, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name. Let me read that again. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. I will not blot out his name. Does Jesus blot out anything? Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions, your sins, and for my own sake remembers them no more. Jesus is not in the business of blotting out your name from the book of life. He's in the business of blotting out your sins. That's what I got for you guys. I love you guys.